Welcome to the God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're tuned back in this week. Well, this week we'll be having the second part of our interview with Jay Warner Wallace. If you missed last week's show, go to GodSolutionShow.com and get that interview. Anyway, you can find out more about Jim at ColdCaseChristianity.com. He is a homicide detective, adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University, and he was an avowed atheist for many, many years until at the age of 35, he applied his detective skills to the evidence for faith in Jesus Christ and determined that Christianity was true. It's going to be an exciting second part of our interview. I would encourage you to pick up his books, which include Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, and Alive. You can get those at Amazon or wherever you buy books. Anyway, without any further ado, let's get right back to the interview. Welcome back to the God Solution Show, Jay Warner Wallace. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So last week we discussed investigating evidence, some of the evidence for Christianity. Again, I would encourage the audience to pick up Jay Warner Wallace's book, Cold Case Christianity. But today I kind of want to look into some of the other aspects of the evidence, we're going to look into God's crime scene and some of what Jim talks about in that book. So let's get right to it. What does the beginning of the universe tell us about God's existence? What we try to do here in this book is take a very um, different approach, because like we said you know, last week, there's, there's really not a lot of new information in science in, the, in this area, some of these areas over the last, say, 15 years. Of course, some of these areas, it's changing daily. But um, you know, so what we're looking at is stuff that's been talked about. In, and let's face it, you're talking about a cold case detective here. So, so you've got to ask yourself, well, in areas of cosmology and biology and philosophy, are there better you know, biologists? And, and of course, yeah. Are there better cosmologists? Of course, yeah. But the problem is, is how do we assess whatever they tell us? And how do we form a case with it? And so I think there are some um, um, kind of details and some approaches that detectives take that will be helpful as we kind of look through the evidence that these scientists will bring to us. And I actually think we can make a very strong case for the existence of God without ever opening a, a page of Scripture just from the science and philosophy of what is happening in the cosmos today in terms of studies. Now, let me just tell you the approach I took. I, I, we, we walk into death scenes. Not every death scene is a crime scene. Now, that's one thing that detectives learn quickly is that you get into a death scene, you can die four different ways. Only one of those is criminal. You can die by accident. You can die by suicide, die naturally. These are not investigations we're going to get involved in. We're only going to get involved if there's been a murder. But how do we know if the death we're investigating is a murder? Well, it's a simple little game we play. It took me a lot of years to kind of notice this and start teaching it to others because you do it so intuitively, you almost kind of miss it. And what you're doing is, is you're playing this game of inside or outside the room where you look at the room and you ask yourself a question. The evidence I have in the room, can I explain this evidence by staying in the room? If I can explain it by staying in the room, it's probably not a murder. Here's what I mean. I got a, a victim, he had a gunshot wound, but there's a pistol laying next to him, and the pistol it belongs to him. It's registered to him. It's been, it's been in his house forever. Uh, there's no sign of anyone else in the room. The DNA on the pistol is his. The, if the fingerprints are his, there's no evidence anyone other than him has been in the room. Well, I can explain now everything in the room by staying in the room. This is going to be an accidental or a suicide. And now, on the other hand, if that pistol is not his, and the DNA and fingerprints are not his, and there's actually bloody footprints leading out of the room, this changes everything because now 
now the stuff that's in the room cannot be explained by staying in the room. I've got to go outside the room to figure out whose footprints those are, whose gun is that, whose fingerprints are that. And when you go outside the room, now you've got to actually consider the real possibility you've got an intruder. So in the essence, intruders change death scenes into crime scenes. And intruders, intruders also kind of change, you know, whatever sense of curiosity you might have about how this guy killed himself or how he accidentally died. That's gonna, it'll change it into a sense of urgency to find the guy who did it. So what we did in God's crime scene is simply say, look, there's eight pieces of evidence in the room of the universe that everyone has to explain. Regardless of your worldview, the burden of proof is on each and every one of us to explain and account for these eight pieces of evidence. The only question is, can you explain them by staying in the room? If you can, then some form of naturalism will suffice. But if you can't, well, then you're going to have to step out of the natural room of the universe, all space, time, matter, the laws of physics and chemistry that govern these things. If you've got to go outside of that in order to get an explanation, well, then you've got good reason to believe there's an intruder. And that, that changes everything. So we're, we just took this template of inside or outside the room and applied it to the universe. So when we look at the beginning of the universe, we could cite the cosmological argument. Dr. William Wayne Craig has been a famous modern proponent of that. But everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. I think it's watertight, and it's exactly what you're saying. Everything here didn't come from nothing here. It didn't come from itself. It had to have a beginning and it had to have a cause greater than itself. So I think this evidence is compelling for God's existence. Agreed? Well, a friend of mine said, you know, why don't you have, you know, why don't you cite the cosmological argument or the teleological argument or the axiological argument or the ontological argument? I don't, I just, I thought, that's been done. I think what we're doing here is rather than make an overt case, you know, here's five reasons why we know God exists. What we're doing here is just trying to take as neutral an examination of eight pieces of evidence as we can. So what I try to do in the book is offer, you know, there's a secondary investigation section of the book. And so each chapter starts by examining a real crime scene that I've worked in which you have to use a certain skill set to solve the crime. And then we turn the corner and show how that skill set is used to look at this one particular piece of evidence. And then what we do at the end of it all is we assemble all the explanations, not just the one from outside the room, you know, the God explanation. We, we, we look at all the explanations that have been offered by naturalists in any effort to stay inside the room and ask the question, okay, here they are. Do you think those work? Which, which of these explanations do you think is better? Do you think the explanations inside the room are better than the explanation outside the room? I mean, honestly, and if, you, if you're able to set down your, your biases, if you were trying to convince a jury that one of these explanations is better than the other, do you think that the explanations from inside the room are, are good at all when it comes to those eight things? And you know, one of those you've already mentioned is the beginning of the universe. You know, you've only got a couple of ways to explain this, and really none of them are inside the room. Uh, I mean, all the cosmologists that are doing this work are, are suggesting there's something outside the room of the physical universe that is the uncaused first cause of our universe. It's a quantum environment of some type. It's a multiverse generator of some type. There's something that, that you, can't, you can't create yourself. So the stuff that's inside the room, space, time, and matter, is not available to you uh, before the beginning of the universe. So you're going to have to, right away, the very first step that almost anyone looking at this case has to take is already outside the room because you're outside of space, time, and matter. I was recently out on the college campus here in Albuquerque, 
talking with students about the evidence for Christ, and I encountered an astrophysicist. He's actually completing his Ph.D. in astrophysics right now. Okay. And as we talked about the evidence, I asked him what his spiritual beliefs were. And he was reluctant to share those with us. He said, I don't like to get into it all that much. I keep those kind of myself. But he said, I will tell you one thing. As an astrophysicist, he said, I cannot look at the sky without having very deep spiritual convictions about the universe. And he said it's a spiritual experience every time I look at the sky and the stars. I think he kind of hints at what you're talking about there. Yeah, I think when somebody who's working on a public school campus uh, in, in any kind of sciences, the hard sciences, says to you, you know, I don't like to really talk about this kind of thing. There's a good reason to suspect that the reason why he doesn't want to talk about it is because the, the view he holds is not popular on the college campus. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if, in fact, what you have is somebody there who's starting to at least form some form of either theism or deism and who doesn't really want to admit that he holds some form of theism or deism because that wouldn't make him very popular with his fellow, um, you know, his fellow professors. Okay, what about the beginning of life? We've talked about that on the show numerous times, but again, this doesn't just happen inside the room. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, this is one of those things that um, is the more we learn, uh, the, the more difficult that the problem is. Uh, the more we learn, the the bigger the the gap is. So it's not as though we're inserting God in the gap here because we don't we can't. And in this chapter, what I try to do is is talk about how we use all those. Those questions that sometimes um, your journalism teacher would have you use in class, you know, the who, the what, the where, the why, the when, the how, those questions detectives also use. And so if you apply those to the questions related to the origin of life, you know, how, uh, when, uh, where, all of these questions, we are no closer to having an answer of any kind of substance for any of those questions, any of them, than we were, you know, 50 years ago. And as a matter of fact, the more we learn, the more difficult the conundrum, because the, the kind of uh, chicken and egg conundrum of biological life is very, very difficult to solve. It's, it's, it's not something that you can uh, just brush over. It's, it's, and so the more people do work in this area, the more they open up questions. So here's the problem you have. that it, it, it appears that really what's guiding and solving the chicken and egg problems between, for example, ribosomes and proteins, between the cell membranes and the cell inner workings of the cell, between ATP and, I mean, there's so many conundrums of biology. What solves all of this, of course, we know is in the DNA molecule. And that DNA molecule is so information-rich, guiding and, and so the question becomes, well, what, what, how, do the, how does naturalism explain the existence of information? And, and it, can it reduce information to the point where it's so simple that physics can cause it? Well, if you can try, and you'll get some lower forms of information like statistics, but you, you just can't. That's not what DNA is. DNA is the highest level of information available to us, very distinct, very uh, specific um, and, and if you make small changes, it changes meaning. Um, if you, if you, it appears to be a directing activity, and it appears to expect a response from its direction. These are all the highest kind of characteristics of information. And so, if in the end the foundation of the universe and life in the universe is something other than just straight physics, if it is instead um, information. Well, that, that, as Dembski, I think, is right, uh, you know, William Dembski has written about this in his latest book, I think that changes everything. And, and, that, and that creates for us um, uh, an even bigger conundrum. 
is how do we, when all, the only experience we've ever had in any of our history of science is that information comes from intelligence. And it can't get it from physics. So, so what is the intelligence then that is the undergirding the entire universe? The origin of life stuff is one of the things that, that Anthony Flew was so puzzled by as, as a lifelong atheist. And these are the, some of the things that are fine-tuning in the universe and fine-tuning in biology and, and information and DNA has really done a, done a lot to, to, to kind of lay the foundation for doubt for a lot of phys- philosophical naturalists. And for our audience, if you don't know who Anthony Flew was, he was one of the most famous atheists of the last century. And he came to believe in God before he died because of the intelligent design evidence that was coming out before he died. So that's awesome. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. You can go to godsolutionshow.com for more information on the show. We're interviewing Jay Warner Wallace, world-renowned Christian apologist and author. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Well, you talked about this information and design. So what ultimately does design tell us about God's existence? Well, what's interesting is, um, you know, I look at four different categories in this book. You know, two pieces of cosmological evidence, two pieces of biological evidence, two pieces of mental evidence, and two pieces of moral evidence. And the reason why I think that's so powerful is that if I was looking at you as a suspect in in a murder, and I had a witness who said, yeah, I saw him do it. Okay, that would be great, wouldn't it? But but it but if I instead had a witness plus some physical evidence at the scene plus some behaviors you demonstrated before and after the murder plus some things you said to people, if I had all of this stuff also, it would be even more powerful because that would I'd have several pieces of evidence in very different kinds of categories. And when you see that, you can have more confidence that your inference is sound. And so what we have here are eight pieces of evidence in four very different categories, all of which point to the same reasonable inference. And so when I see that information, uh, this means we're looking for something outside the room that is intelligent and can account for the information in DNA. And DNA is not just information. It's, it's information with a purpose. It's goal-oriented. It's goal-directed. It's, it's, it's DNA, actually. For, so if you, you watch DNA instruct the inner workings of the cell, you know, it, it, it starts at the formation of certain important micro-machines, and it stops talking when the, those machines are formed. So it's definitely goal-oriented. It seems to have a, a purpose in mind. And when you see that, um, you're, you're looking now for a characteristic that will match it outside the room. As a matter of fact, I always say that when you walk into a death scene, a murder scene, and you've got evidence in the room, You that evidence tells you something about your suspect before you ever meet him, because that evidence is got to be explained by the suspect. So, for example, if someone is shot in the back of the head in a murder, that's one kind of murder suspect I'm looking for. On the other hand, if that person was stabbed 80 times in the chest, that's somebody else I'm looking for, because those are two different kinds of killers. One is very impersonal, one is very personal. And so there's a good chance that one may not even know the other guy, and, and one knows them very, very well. I'm looking for two different kinds of suspects, and I know that just based on the evidence in the room. Same thing here. I've got eight pieces of evidence in the room, a universe that comes into existence from nothing, fine-tuning in the universe, uh, the origin of life in the universe, the appearance of design and biology, a free agency and a consciousness in, in, as us as far as our mental properties, and the existence of moral, objective moral truths and what we would call evil. These are things that we have to explain, and it turns out the suspect profile that's developed from those eight things in the room is striking. We're 
looking for an, an, a, a, a personal agent that is a mind that can make free choices, that is the standard for all moral truth, even the standard by which we would measure anything and call it evil. We're looking for something that has a creative design ability to, to have a purpose in mind and be able to intelligently provide us with information. It can cause all space, time, and matter, which means it has to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Wow. So what are we looking for? That what kind of personal thing could give you all eight of these things? Do you think your multiverse generator can give you the beginning of the universe? Okay, I'll even grant you that. Great. Can your multiverse generator also give you a standard for morals? Can it give you mind and free agency? That's the problem, is that I'm looking for one suspect that explains all eight pieces of evidence. This is always the case with me. I'm looking for one guy that can unify the evidence set. And it turns out there is one being that can unify the evidence set, that can do something so crazy and so divergent and so different as create a universe from nothing, but also be the standard by which we call anything good or bad. That one suspect is very different than the kind of laws of physics. that they, So it turns out that in the end, my atheist friends are very similar to me. We're both looking for the uncaused first cause of the universe, but they believe that that cause is impersonal. I believe that cause is personal because only a personal cause could give you all eight things. But to get there, we have to actually be willing to follow the evidence where it would lead. Last week, we talked about the difference between metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism. I don't think we actually clarified those terms, but we kind of briefly touched on it. But if somebody's coming at this with a background in metaphysical naturalism or a perspective there, they're going to have trouble, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the presupposition they hold. Not that their methodology is different than what their presupposition is. You know, you can use science without being so committed to, uh, you know how many uh, Christians were involved and still are involved on a daily basis in the sciences? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I mean a list of them on my website just so people can see the, the kind of current, well-known uh, scientists who are doing science without uh, embracing scientism, this idea that you can only... You know, you can only trust things that come out of the natural world, uh, you know, some, force, some natural force or natural property. And so you don't have to be married to one to do the other. You don't have to be uh, married to one philosophically to be uh, methodologically uh, uh, consistent uh, as a scientist. And so that's the difference. Remember, science doesn't tell you anything scientists do. And this is something that Frank Turk and I are constantly preaching, is that the science produces a data set. But in the end, the science doesn't say anything. It's the interpreter of science that puts this together as a case and says, I believe that this science says this. Or they won't usually say, I believe. They'll say, the science says this. Well, it turns out that if you're committed as a philosophical naturalist, you will find a way to interpret the data to further your cause. And that's what we're seeing happening here, is we're seeing people who have got a, a conclusion in mind, they won't accept anything outside the room. So when someone says, well, yeah, I believe there's a multiverse generator that could accomplish this, well, guess what? They're going to embrace that wholeheartedly. Even though there's no physical evidence to suggest there's anything more than this one universe. Now, look, I, I see now there was a report yesterday where uh, there are claims being made about the background radiation, that you know they're seeing some anomalies in the background radiation. And, of course, a lot of people want to look, oh, that's got to be evidence of another universe touching ours. Of course, they want that to be the evidence, but how would you ever test that? How would you ever know if that's the case? On the basis of what standard could you get outside of the space-time? And of, you know, it's, it, to me, it's, it's preposterous the idea that you could ever—you can't run an experiment that will confirm that for you. 
you can make observations, and then when you get the data, you start to interpret it in light of your presuppositions. If you're committed to the idea that there's an entire assembly of universes, then you can certainly say anything you want. But it doesn't mean it's so. Again, the science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. So let's look at it from the opposite angle. Is there compelling evidence for God's non-existence? So for those that are bringing their presupposition into their conclusion, they're arguing against God's existence, is there evidence on their side? See, I think most of them kind of assume atheism as a starting point, and a lot of people do that. But we would never be okay with that. We would never assume the non-existence of a cause for any other effect, right? Well, they're going to assume there's some other cause. So they would say there's not that there's no cause, that we identify the cause or believe the cause to be something else. Now, I want to tell you this. Here, here we are talking about this right on Christmas Day, a day that we all typically are all off of work, or some of us are. You know, But the point is the culture celebrates this as something special still, which I think is interesting. And even as an atheist, I would celebrate it. And what I've discovered working cases is that, that, that when the prosecution gets done with its six weeks at trial and it says to the jury that we rest, the defense attorney, who's very, very well paid, does not stand up and say, you know what, that was so awesome, we're done. We have no other explanation for this. No, they now begin their six weeks of presenting their side, their case, in every effort to convince the jury that we're wrong about our case and they're right about theirs. I'm never surprised that defense attorneys present a case. But I find that my Christian friends... Uh, are sometimes a little bit isolated, and they don't really, when they first hear an objection, they're like, wow, there's another explanation for this? Yeah, duh, of course there is. Of course they're going to offer a different explanation. And I've actually been in trial where after they've offered that explanation and we've convicted their defendant, the defendant then confesses, which means that everything they said over the last six weeks was clearly not true because now the defendants actually confessed to it. So you just have to realize, look, the other side is going to make a case. The question is, is that case as reasonable as our case? And that's one of the reasons why this book is as long as it is. This book, uh, uh, God's Crime Scene, is longer than Cold Case Christianity because I had to write a whole second section in which I went through every explanation in enough detail so that the reader can look at it and go, yeah, okay, that's crazy. So the, I want if there's you know for example uh, moral truths or consciousness for example there's like five or six alternative theories for consciousness which is incredibly hard to explain if we're in a physical universe in which all we have is physical stuff space time and matter and the laws that govern physical stuff that kind of physicalism leads to determinism and then you don't have uh, non-material things like minds and you don't have a personal free agency all you have are material things that bump into each other and one effect causes the next thing and I mean it's a very different universe we'd be living in if, if atheism was true so when I see that the naturalist has got six explanations for consciousness, they are all efforts to, to try to explain these without, you know, from inside the natural universe. They don't want to admit there's anything that's not material, and, and including your mind, including your consciousness. Even though we have an experience of consciousness, they want to deny it as an illusion. But my question, of course, would be is, what is it you're using to, to, to determine it's an illusion? You're using your conscious mind. I mean, you're stuck with consciousness no matter what you do. And, and, and so when I see the alternative explanations, that's when you realize, yeah, you know what? This theistic explanation is pretty good. It's a lot better than the six explanations that have been offered from inside the room. So, yes, your atheist friends are going to offer alternative explanations. Don't be surprised when that happens. But if you take the time to review what their explanation is, I think you'll be even more comfortable with your theistic explanation. 
So if you're a skeptic, I would encourage you to go out and buy Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, and Alive. You could just go to Amazon and type in J. Warner Wallace, and you'll find those, and read the evidence. Jim, any other suggestions? Well, I want to wish everyone, uh, believers, of course, a Merry Christmas. And, and as somebody who has celebrated Christmas for years but denied the source, I mean, Christmas was about Santa Claus for me, uh, that's really all it was ever going to be. I would just ask people to, to kind of stop and actually think about whether or not your presuppositions are true. Now, the first thing you may say, you have to be a Christian in order to reject strict naturalism as the explanation of everything in the universe. But I do think if you're honest and you drop your 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 presuppositions against anything outside of space, time, or matter, uh, that you'll find yourself opening doors you never had opened before. And if you want the real risky journey, the real free thinking journey, the real journey that, that is going to provoke the, the you know the awe and anger of your friends and family. I think a lot of us, I, as an atheist for me, I was very defiant in my views. If you want real defiance, explore the open doors that occur once you've rejected your naturalism. Now, Christians, I would encourage you to get these books as well and to get polished up on your apologetics. Any suggestions for Christians on how they could be sharing this evidence with their friends? Yeah, i got to tell you that the reason why we write these books, we write them for four different groups, two groups broken into two, two categories, the believers who are committed and believers who may have some questions, unbelievers who may have some questions, and then unbelievers who are committed. Now, those four groups, I would suggest that probably only three are going to pay attention, at least the first. It's the groups aside from the committed atheists. Okay, I get that. I was in that fourth group for many years. But it's possible to be in the fourth group and slide over. So Christians, what we have to be able to do is to knock down the barriers that divide the, the, the third and the fourth group. Because I had walls standing in front of me because I had objections that you Christians couldn't answer. And once I could found answers for those myself, those barriers were down, and then I could hear the gospel. But I couldn't hear that gospel until the wall was short enough for me to hear what you were saying. So it's important for us as Christians to know enough to knock down the walls. And again, you could get J. Warner Wallace's books to help you equip yourself to know enough to knock down those walls. Anyway, well, people can find out more about you at coldcasechristianity.com. Again, that's coldcasechristianity.com. And again, your books are Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels, God's Crime Scene, A Cold Case Detective Examines the Evidence for a Divinely Created Universe, and Alive, A Cold Case Approach to the Resurrection. They could also watch your TV show, and they could follow you on Twitter, they could follow you on Facebook, things like that, correct? Absolutely. love to join them. love to get involved in the conversation. Any other sites or resources you would encourage them to check out? No, as a matter of fact, if you've got direct TV, we are on NRB on Mondays and Saturdays, and we try to spend about a half an hour in each episode just kind of examining this evidence. Wonderful. Well, Jim, it's been a wonderful couple weeks with you, and I know it's Christmas. Is there anything you'd like to share with our audience before we close out the interview? Yeah, it's really easy, as you know, to spend Christmas Day really kind of um, in a non-Christian way. Even as Christians, it's easy to get caught up in all the cultural trappings of Christmas. But what a great opportunity if you've got kids on Christmas to take a second to remind each other what we're actually celebrating. So I would take the time. I mean, some of us do, some of us don't. But, man, it's easy to get caught up in the gift-giving side of it without actually getting caught up in what we are really here to remember. Well, thank you again so much for being on the show, and Merry Christmas. Hey, thanks thanks so much. Merry Christmas to you, too. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the show today. That was the second part of our interview with Jay Warner Wallace. You can get both those under the Past Shows tab at godsolutionshow.com. What Jim talked about today, the evidence for faith in Christ, 
is significant. And I can't think of a better day than Christmas Day to put your faith and trust in Jesus if you haven't already. If you haven't, you could do that right now, verbalizing it through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life, be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible says if you took that step today for the first time, that you can look forward to a life with him on this planet and an eternity with him forever. What a great way to celebrate Christmas. Well, I hope you are having a great Christmas, and I hope that you'll go to GodSolutionShow.com, check out our past shows, contact us, let us know what you think about the show, visit a church that's listed there, and even consider making an end-of-the-year tax-deductible gift. Your gifts will help keep the show on the air, and they will help expand it to even new stations where we can equip Christians with evidence so that they can stand strong in their faith and so that they can share it with their friends and so that people can come to know Christ because of the evidence for the Christian faith, which is overwhelmingly strong. We're going to have a lot of great guests coming up soon. Those will include Ravi Zacharias and others. So please consider making an end-of-the-year gift that's tax-deductible. You can go to GodSolutionShow.com and click the the end-of-the-year gift tab. Thank you so, so much. Well, anyway, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.